Now I'm on. There you go. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. And, uh, you know, uh, at, at the end of that video, now go and be the church. I'm so glad that you don't do that. Thank you for not following directions uh, for once this morning. Hey, I'm Brian McCoy. If we've not met, I'm one of the pastors here. Privileged to do that. And uh, Mario, thank you for, for sharing. He'll share that story again in the next service. And then we'll have a special family meeting together as a church on June the 9th. And that's when the church family will gather and say yes or no to Mario serving uh, with us and among us as an elder in the church. And that's, that's the only thing that that family meeting will be for. So it won't be very long, but want to remind you of that. That's coming up on June the 9th. Hey, we're uh, in the end, at the end of a series of sermons on the church, understanding and loving what Christ loves. And we started it back at the end of March, and we finished today. Hurrah! <laughs> yeah, we're going to wrap it up. And so uh, I want you to open your Bible with me, if you would please, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And uh, after last week and uh, 50 minutes of topical preaching... Uh, I did everything that I could to get back in the sweet spot, and we're going to go to a text, and we're going to camp, all right? So all in favor of that, say amen, and everybody said amen. I'm not waiting on you. Well, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> it's going to be better, I think. I'm hoping and praying. And we're going to talk, last week we talked about membership in the church. Today we're going to talk about the message of the church. What is it, the message of the church? What is it that the church has to say in the world today? And we're going to walk through part of Romans chapter 1. Certainly not in the entire chapter. And as we read through this, you're going to find me uh, skipping over a few verses here and there because I want to just kind of capture the flow of it here for us as we launch into it, all right? So we'll begin here in Romans chapter 1. Do you, do you have it? If you're using the Bible there, it's on page 939 if you, if you need it there. But we're going to read the first four verses, and then you'll just follow me. I'll call out where we're going to go to next in that first chapter. All right, are you with me? Here we go, all right? This is the first chapter of Romans, verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse seven. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that are not all that familiar, the New Testament is composed mostly of letters written by an apostle, a, a disciple, a follower of Christ to a particular group of people, most often to a church. And so this is the Apostle Paul writing to the group of believers in Rome. And it sounds like a salutation, doesn't it? He's opening up, he's telling them why he's writing and what he wants to accomplish. Verse eight. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 14, for I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous 
will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord, right? Thanks be to God, yeah. Let's pray together, all right? Father, thank you this morning for the word. We thank you that you have inspired it and that you have guarded it and you have kept it and preserved it through millennia. We are grateful for people in ancient times and centuries ago who copied it and wrote it out again and again and who printed it and enabled us to be able to see it and read it even in our own language. Father, we are mindful this morning that many of those people gave their lives literally so that we could hold a Bible in our hand and read it for ourselves. And we are grateful because we know that that is your work and we thank you for it this morning. Open your word to our hearts and our minds. Help us to have ears to hear what you say to us this morning in your word. Help us to hear clearly and to respond in obedience by faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So what is it that the church has to say to the world? Uh, over and over you see and you notice, certainly in those 17 verses, Paul refers to the gospel. In fact, it occurs in those 17 verses more than anywhere else in the letter of the, of, to the Romans. More than anywhere else. In fact, maybe in one spot in the Bible, more than anywhere else in all the rest of the Bible, it occurs here. What is, what is the gospel? What does it mean? Paul is saying this is the message of the church. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of his son or concerning his son. As Christians, we're gospel people. We believe that it's the message of the gospel that has saved us. And so in obedience to our Lord's command, the Lord Jesus, we take the good news to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all the nations. And you would think, in fact, uh, uh, somebody stopped me out, outside this morning. They said, you're preaching on the gospel this morning? Are you doing it for free? Because that ought to be like a freebie, right? Uh, it's, it's the gospel, you know. We, we try to get to the gospel every Sunday. And I certainly understand the sentiment. It was kind of funny. But, you know, not everybody means the same thing when they use the word gospel. And so in some, in some ways, it's very simple. Somebody has used the illustration that the gospel is simple enough uh, that a child can understand it, and it's, and it's deep enough that it's like deeper than the ocean. It's, it's an amazing thing. What is the gospel? Some people will say that the gospel is the good news that God loves you and he longs to favor your life and he wants you to have a bigger vision of your life and he wants to save you for bigger and better things. He has favor that he wants to put into your life and so he wants to save you spiritually and he wants to bless you physically and he wants to enable you financially to be all that you can be. So enlarge your vision, see all that God wants and accept Jesus. Is that the gospel? You hear that a lot. Is that the gospel? Sometimes you hear the good news explained and it's kind of the entire scope of the Christian message and, and it leans heavily on the last part of it. The, some theologians would call it the eschatological piece of the gospel, that part that says, you know what, one day every mountain is gonna be made low and every valley is gonna be made level and the glory of the Lord is gonna cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and, and the, the poor and the homeless are all gonna be cared for and the, the first are gonna be last and the last are gonna be first. Is, is, is that the gospel? Come follow God into this new kingdom. Is that the gospel? Well, that's part of the gospel. It's part of the Christian message, but it's, it's not really the gospel. What is, what is the gospel? The word itself means good news. And there's an illustration that helps us understand why that's important to know, that the gospel is good news. Uh, in the first century, if you wanted to get the word out about something, you didn't get on Twitter, 
you didn't use Instagram or Facebook, you found a herald, a messenger who would carry the news of something to a group of people. And so in the first century, if a, if a commander was on the battlefield and he had won the battle and there had been an army threatening the city and he'd won the victory, how would the population know that they were safe? He would send a herald, he would send a messenger with the evangel, the good news. And that person would come to the city and they would stand in the squares and they would announce the good news that the victory had been won. They would say, we're safe, we're saved, we will live. You can go to your homes, you can live your lives. You can stop building defenses, we're saved. And that's the essence of the gospel. Here it is, the gospel is not advice about what you should do. It is the summons to believe the good news of what God has already done. That's the gospel. It's not advice about what you should do. It is the summons to believe what God has already done. It is not advice about how you should live your life. It is a call to believe the good news of where you can find true life, and that's in Jesus Christ. And when you look through the first half of Romans chapter 1, you see all the component parts of the gospel. You see the elements of the gospel as Paul goes through it because he says, hey, God has set me apart. Jesus Christ has set me apart and called me to be a, an apostle for the sake of the gospel of God. And so the gospel begins not with me and not with you. It begins with God. God, the Father, he initiates a plan to save humanity. And why does he initiate a plan to save humanity? Because humanity is dead in our sins. We're separated from God and we're sinners by nature and by choice and we're living lives that are really condemned before God. So God initiates the gospel. He initiates this plan of salvation and he keeps a promise that he made. He says, but this, was a, this was a promise that he made beforehand through the prophets to make his son come in the flesh and take on human flesh and to come as a descendant of King David to sit on the throne and to rule over his people with justice and righteousness forever. And so this is part of the good news that God was going to come. He's going to initiate a plan to save humanity. He's going to do it through his son who is the king and will sit on the throne. And so Jesus comes in the flesh and what does this king do? He lays down his life for his people. He gives up his life so that we can have his. And he dies in our place for our sins on the cross. And then look at it, by, by the power of the Spirit, you have the triune God here, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all at work. By the Spirit of holiness, he's raised from the dead, proving that he is Lord over all. That's really how Paul gives us all the component parts of the gospel. If you wanted to put it in a sentence, I would say it this way, that the gospel is the good news that God, the holy, just creator of the universe, moved to save sinful men and women by sending his son, God in the flesh, to die in our place for our sins on the cross and to show his power over sin and death through his resurrection from the dead so that everyone who would repent and believe on Christ would be reconciled to God forever. This is the gospel. Now what you'll notice there, as much as we would love for it to be there perhaps, that there's no promise of being healthy all the days of your life. There's no promise of being wealthy and coming into wealth as a result of coming into a relationship with God. We hear that constantly in our culture. It's a perversion of the truth. We may experience, and many of us do experience good health 
and many of us have experienced wealth and we've experienced the goodness of God and financially, that kind of thing. But these, these things are not about the gospel. These are things that are not about salvation in that respect. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Now, Paul says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul say I'm not ashamed of the gospel? What does he mean when he, when he says that? Think about this. He's going to Rome. He's talked about wanting to go to Rome, and Rome is the epicenter of the world. It's a place of great sophistication. There's a lot of culture going on in Rome, and maybe Paul is a little intimidated by the thought of going there and sharing the gospel, even though he's eager to do it. And so he's reminding himself, and even the people who are listening to him, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He wrote this letter to the Roman church from the city of Corinth. And remember what he said to the Corinthians in the first chapter. He said, you know what, not everybody believes what we say. In fact, a lot of people, when they hear what we believe about the word of the cross, and it's just another phrase Paul uses to describe the gospel, when they hear the word of the cross, they think it's foolishness. They think it's folly. You should be ashamed of yourself for believing something like that. And so Paul may be putting all of those things together. Many people, when they hear what we believe, they think it's, it's foolishness, don't they? And you've probably had those kinds of encounters. And they think that until, as you heard in Mario's testimony, how the Lord works all these things out. It's amazing. Until they have eyes to see. It seems so foolish and, and ridiculous until there are eyes to see it. Think about some of the things that, that we believe, that there is one triune God not many gods, not one impersonal force at the center of the universe. We believe that God created the world and that he made it good and that he created humanity in his image, but human beings have fallen away from God because of their sin and were separated from God and condemned before God. That the most important events in the history of the world are the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe these things and that Jesus didn't just die on a cross as a moral example for us, but he died to atone for our sins, to take on himself the wrath of God so that we didn't have to take it. And that he actually rose from the dead and that he ascended to the Father and is seated now at the right hand until he comes again. And when he comes again, there will be a final judgment and the beginning of his kingdom that will bring light and life and joy forever. We believe that a person must be born again, John chapter 3, that that's a real experience. It's a necessary experience. That's what John referred to it as. We believe that as believers, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that one day God will come and redeem us fully because the Spirit lives inside of us. And we believe that the church are the people of God on the earth. We believe all these things. And, and you've had conversations with your neighbors, with your friends, with your coworkers, And you know that unless they have eyes to see, it just seems so foolish and ridiculous. And sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel. We're a little nervous about sharing it. It was true for Paul when he was going to Rome. It's true for us today. And we really only have two choices, right? I mean, we can either abandon the gospel or we can embrace the shame of it. And many churches and many uh, teachers and preachers have abandoned the gospel. They water it down. They talk about uh, other things besides sin. They talk about other things than the substitutionary atonement for our sins, that Christ had to come and he died in our place for our sins. Otherwise, we would be condemned forever. By God. They talk about a lot of other things. They talk about your health and your wealth and, and your prosperity and all of those things, but they don't talk about the core issues of the real gospel because they're, they're, they're concerned mostly with having a crowd. They, they want you to come back. Uh, and we want you to come back. Make no mistake. But we don't want to be 
we don't want to be underhanded and we don't want to we don't want to be short of what God has to say in his word we want to teach the gospel we want to be a gospel church and we want people to know that God is great and yet he loves us and he has done all that is necessary to save us if we would but trust in him and so we cannot abandon the gospel we choose rather to embrace the shame Jesus said if you're ashamed of me in this generation I will be ashamed of you when I come again and so we choose to embrace that shame. Now, what does Paul say about this gospel in verses 16 and 17? Let's just go through those verses. The message that seems to be so foolish is actually powerful. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation in verse 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes this, Christ sent me to preach. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, I don't make up a message. I don't come up with a sermon on my own. I don't uh, come to you with some kind of good news that I've thought up on my own. The good news is something that has been revealed to us by God. And I, it's not about having eloquent words. It's about preaching the truth. And if that were ever true, it's when I'm in front of you, for sure, right? It's not about eloquent words of wisdom. It's about the gospel. He went on to say, for the word of the cross, again, his way of describing the God, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's why two people can come into a room like this and hear the gospel on a Sunday morning, and one person can be powerfully gripped by it and changed forever, and another person can walk out and say, where's lunch? Michael Byrd, an Australian commentator, described it this way. The gospel, he said, is a speech act. In other words, it's, it's words, but it's doing something. It, is only, it not only announces the way of salvation, he said, it actualizes salvation in those with faith, who hear it with faith. And then he kind of gets... He kind of preaches as he writes in his commentary. He says, the gospel manifests God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-uper-mega grace power that results in salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's a speech act. And so we should, as Paul said to the Philippians, live lives worthy of the gospel. But beloved, it's never been sufficient for you to simply live the gospel before your neighbors and your coworkers. The gospel is news, and you have to say it. You have to share it. You have to tell it to people. And since the gospel is the power of God to salvation, we just need to turn it loose. Just turn it loose. It'll be okay. I remember I was on a partnership project years ago in East Asia with a team. There were eight of us, three translators, and, and we were in a place that was uh, very far from any city. It was a very agrarian area. Most of the people there were followers of Islam. Nobody spoke English for the most part. And you look at our little team, you're like, how in the world are, else are we going to have any dent? How are we ever going to communicate the gospel with people when they don't understand our language? We're working through a translator. It's just going to be near impossible and I went back and I remembered in my notes, we, we did a devotional the first night that we were there and we said these three things. We said, listen, remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. Let's put our confidence in what Jesus said there. And the Spirit is here to open the hearts of unbelievers to hear the gospel and receive it. So let's put our hope in that. Let's put our confidence in that. And let's put our confidence in what Paul wrote to the Romans, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so... Your confidence is not in your ability. 
It's not in having all the eloquent words to say them just rightly. If your confidence is in God and in his gospel, then you can be bold and you can just go ahead and start the conversation. Because it's not about you, it is the gospel of God. That's the power for salvation. Think about it like this. The gospel itself has the power to cause people who thought it utterly foolish to receive it as true wisdom. The gospel itself has the power to cause people who thought it was humiliatingly weak to receive it as ultimate strength. And there are many of you in the room, like Mario, who would say, I I see that now in my life. As I look back, I see that. I thought it was a ridiculous story. I thought it didn't make any sense. I thought it flew in the face of everything that I had ever learned or had ever been taught. And then what happened? Suddenly your life starts to get unhinged and things start to look differently to you and you can't really explain it and you don't really know what's going on. And it would be difficult for me to explain it other than to go to the text of the Bible and say, that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life, unhitching you from so many things and, and, and bringing you and leading you and calling you into a relationship with God until finally your eyes open and you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the best way we have of explaining what happens when somebody is born again. And this is the power of the gospel. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of this message. Just turn it loose. And what is salvation anyway? Salvation is to be rescued. It's to be delivered. And there's kind of a not yet and an an already. An already and a not yet kind of dimension to it, right? Because already we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Already we have the spirit of God living inside of us as a down payment for complete and full redemption when Christ comes again. But not yet. We don't yet have all the future blessings of the kingdom. And so there's still sickness and there's still disease. There's still mourning and crying and grief and pain. All of those things that the apostle John told those that were reading the original letter, all of those things will all pass away one day. But not yet. We still live in this world. People need to hear the gospel. That's why Paul said the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's just making a, for us, it's really a a nod to history. God started somewhere. He began with Abraham. And through Abraham, he formed for himself a people that were meant to be a light to the nations. But know this, even though it's to the Jew first and then also to the Greeks, all of the Jews and all of the Greeks, in other words, all of humanity needs to hear the gospel. We are all human beings fallen and separated from God in our sins. We need to hear the good news of Christ. Every living, breathing human being needs to hear the gospel. Who do you know that needs to hear the gospel? Is it a a brother or a sister? Is it a a parent? Is it an aunt or an uncle? Is it someone that you work with? Is it a neighbor? Maybe across the street or down the corner and you meet them occasionally at the mailbox. Who is it that you know that needs the gospel? Everyone needs the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, to everyone. And Paul says in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 17, There's a lot written about this, and I'm going to try to just uh, unpack it briefly. Paul, I think, has two things in mind. He's, He's talking about the righteous activity of God, that God's doing something, and then there's human receptivity of what God has done. When a person is saved, 
It's God demonstrating his, his righteousness. If you turn the page in your Bible, I'm not asking you to, but if you did, to chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, many people would say, man, that's a classic text. If you want to understand how it is that a holy God who must punish sin, who cannot tolerate sin, how can a holy God forgive sinners? How can he justify us? How can he make us righteous? He, he can't do that. He's holy. He has to punish sin. He does it through his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus stands in for us. And so that passage describes how a holy God who must punish sin can, through the sacrifice of his own son, the Lord Jesus, be both just and the justifier of sinful human beings. So God is allowed to remain just but he can also justify sinners. And so that's God revealing his righteousness, but there's human receptivity because as God does this, he bestows on us a status that is not our own. He gives to us something that we don't have in and of ourselves, and we can never earn it or deserve it. He gives to us righteousness as a gift. We are made righteous, not because we earned it somehow, but because we receive it by faith. He gives it to you freely. On the negative side of salvation, can I say that? It sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? On the negative side of salvation, God forgives our sins. In other words, he takes our sins away. As far as the east is from the west, the Bible says, he takes our sins away from us. But Paul is driving at something much deeper. I'm glad that I have been pardoned and that I don't have any sins on my record, as it were, before God. He, he forgives our sins. But even better is to be made righteous before God. And that's what Paul is getting at, to have a whole new status before God. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look at this verse. Let's read this out loud together. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. And Jesus knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened. It's the great exchange. He takes our prideful, self-reliant, lust-filled, discontented, greedy, fearful hearts, and he makes them like his. He takes our sins, and on the cross, Jesus is covered with them, and because of the cross, we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's an exchange that happens. We become new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Many of you have heard and you know the name Martin Luther. You know uh, some of his story, maybe a lot of his story, maybe more of his story than, than I know. R Martin Luther was a, was a Roman Catholic monk and he would serve in the church and he would help with the communion and those kinds of things. And, and he described verse 17, he said, when he read verse 17 and the lights came on for him, he said, it was like the gateway to paradise had been flung open. That's how he described it. And, and Martin Luther, he was, he was much different than we are today. He, he thought in different categories than we do today. People in our day ask this question, how could a loving God punish anyone? That's the question that we ask. How could a loving God punish anyone? Martin Luther asked the question that everyone in his day asked, and that is, how in the world can a holy God accept anybody? And beloved, that's, that's a biblical question. The other one, not so much. The question the Bible asks is, how can a holy God accept sinful people? The answer is impossible, except because of Christ. Luther was a monk. 
and he is serving and helping with communion and he wrote near the end of his life about his tower experience. It's his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ and in that writing he said this, he said, I felt like a sinner troubled in conscience and without any confidence that my merit would assuage him. He was desperate to become righteous and he tried everything to justify himself before God. And so Luther kissed the steps in Rome. Some of you who have been tourists and gone to Rome, maybe you've done that and you've kissed the steps. It's a very popular kind of thing. He kissed the steps in Rome. He, he, he tried to justify himself before God by praying all the prayers and being very fastidious about all of those rules and all of those rituals and leaning into all of that. He even cut his own body. He was doing everything he could think of to please God so that he would be righteous enough that God would accept him. But as he started to meditate on these verses, 16 and 17 in particular, he said, that's when I, I broke through. That's when I began to see that the law of God was one thing, but the gospel was something else altogether. And he said, that's when I broke through. And that's the breakthrough that all of us need to have. And I've described it as we've gone along through this, but that's when he meditated and he saw that there is a righteousness that is outside of myself. And it's given to me as a gift through faith. The righteousness God requires from us, he provides for us in Jesus. And so the negative side of salvation is that God takes away our sins, but the positive side is that he gives us his righteousness freely. He makes us like him. It's an amazing thing. And how is this righteousness given to us? It's received by faith. In verse 17, it's a strange little phrase that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, <clears throat> faith for faith. Faith from faith to faith. Some of your Bibles, they wrestle with how to translate it best. Uh, can I just give you the bottom line? That, that salvation uh, begins with faith and it ends with faith. It starts with faith and it sees you through by faith all the way to the end when Christ comes again and redeems us. The point is that salvation has always been by faith. From the Old Testament days when Habakkuk, that's who Paul is quoting there, the righteous will live by faith. From the Old Testament days when Habakkuk wrote it, the righteous will live by faith right until this day. Life comes to us through faith in Christ. And we go on from that moment forward, living by faith every day until he comes again. If you're not a Christian with us this morning, what is it that we hold out to you? What, what do we have for you? Believe. Believe the gospel. When you think about the end of life, and you don't know when it will come, but when you think about it, what is it that you will turn to for righteousness before God? How is it that you plan to justify yourself to God on that day? How do you hope to gain God's acceptance? Showing up in a room like this with people like this won't be enough. Doing it every Sunday of every year of your life will never be enough. I'm afraid that many people think that in the end, one day love will win and God will allow everyone in, that somehow everybody will just be taken in and God will say, everybody come on in. But, but you have to read to the next verse, verse 18. It says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. For we suppress the truth of God. And so even in the room right now, there's probably a bit of a wrestling match going on in some hearts. 
where some of us are trying to tamp down everything that's been said this morning that's true. And others are saying, man, that's true. But there's this tension that exists. The truth of the matter is, beloved, we're not acceptable to God on our own. And there's nothing that we can do in our own strength or power to ever make ourselves acceptable to God. Like Luther centuries ago, all of our efforts to justify ourselves will fall short. The gospel says, though, that if you will believe in what God has done through Christ, you will be saved. You will be reconciled to God forever if you'll trust in him. If you're not a believer this morning, believe the gospel. And if you are a believer, share the gospel. Yes, live it. For sure, live it. Live a life worthy of the gospel. But be sure to share it. And don't be ashamed of the gospel. And we're all tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. All of the Christians said, amen. We're all tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. You're in the workplace, and maybe you're one of the only or one of the very few followers of Christ in the workplace. There's a great temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, to not share, to not be too open. You're fearful, perhaps, of legalities, or you're fearful of what this other person will say, and they're very outspoken about what they believe, and you're just a little, it's, it's really being ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to speak up about that. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Those of you who are high school graduated seniors, and you're getting ready to go to U of A, or ASU, or NAU, or Stanford, or wherever it is you're going, don't be ashamed of the gospel if you find yourself to be the only follower of Jesus in the entire class. Don't be intimidated by those things. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So it's not about you, and it's not about speaking eloquently and doing it exactly right. It's about what God will do through the true message of the gospel through you. This morning, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. And so I'm gonna ask the guys, if they would, to go ahead and move to their spots and, and get ready to do that. The Lord's Supper is, is in many ways, an enactment uh, of the gospel, it's a display of the fact that God has saved us through the body and blood of his son given freely for us. And so this morning as we prepare to take it and the children are in the room with us, we always want to kind of set a guard out, as it were, kind of a guardian and a kind of a helpful instruction, we hope, to parents that this is a meal, this bread and this cup, for those of us who are saying, yes, I have trusted in the good news of what God has done for me through Christ. And I'm a Christian, I'm following Christ. But if as a child, your, your, your son or your daughter haven't yet done that, then just let the elements pass and explain to them. This, when we take this, this is, I'm saying, yes, I'm believing this. Yes, I have come to faith in Christ. And if your children haven't yet done that, that's fine. It's just something that believers do to testify of our faith in Christ. And so I wanna take care with that, all right? And so I'm gonna ask the guys, guys, go ahead and come on and serve, serve those elements. And as they're doing it, what I'd like to do is kind of read for you some things that I, that I found uh, about a month ago, and I was reading about the Lord's Supper, and uh, this is all from a guy named J.C. Ryle, J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle. He was an Anglican uh, priest, an Anglican uh, uh, pastor in, in England back in the late 1800s. And when he thought about the Lord's Supper, he, he said this, and he talked about these, these four things. And I want you to kind of think about these things before we take, before we take the, the cup and the bread, all right? He said that the Lord's Supper has a humbling effect on our souls. That as we look at the bread and the cup, the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, it reminds us of how sinful sin truly is. And that nothing less than the sacrifice of God's own perfect son could pay its debt and redeem us from its guilt. We should never be so clothed with humility as we are 
when we take the bread and the cup. And so this is a moment of humility and of thinking of what God has done for us. But then he also goes on to say this, the Lord's Supper has a cheering effect on the soul. When you look at the bread and the cup, it reminds us of all the work that was done to accomplish for us our salvation. And it has been done. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, assuring our salvation. And so the bread and the cup press on us that we were once dead in our sins, but now we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. I love that. He's given us his righteousness. We have a new status before God. The third thing that Ryle said was that the Lord's Supper has a sanctifying effect on us. So it's humbling when we think of what we have been saved from and how it happened. It's cheering to us because now we are new creations in Christ. We have his righteousness, his forgiveness. It has been done. There's nothing that we need to do to add to it. It's done. We can rejoice. But there's a sanctifying piece to it as we move forward in our lives of following Jesus. This bread and cup, he said, should remind us that we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Don't tolerate it. Don't, don't, don't tempt yourself, beloved, <laughs> by watching this or that or reading this or that or hanging out here or that, whatever it is. Don't, don't allow yourself to, to let sin reign in your mortal bodies. He said, but rather present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. After all, he said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the bread and the cup say, remember what Christ has done for you, that you are now in him. So live out this new life in him today. And then he said that the, the bread and the cup have a restraining effect on our soul. I think this is fairly similar, but he says every time we come to this meal, to the bread and to the cup, we should be reminded that we have been bought with a great price. And we ought to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are his. So, a humbling effect, a, a cheering effect, a sanctifying effect, and certainly a restraining effect in our hearts. Let's take a moment and just uh, turn to some quiet prayer, and then I'll lead us as we take the bread and the cup together. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come before you this morning with great humility, bowing before you, the God of the universe, who is holy and who is just, who does all things right, and yet you are gracious. 
and it humbles us to think that you would stoop to save sinners, but you have done that. And you've given your son, the Lord Jesus, in the flesh for us. This morning, Father, we are grateful for his sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin and made sin for us that we might be your righteousness. We are humbled and we are overjoyed that we have new life in you. We thank you. We are grateful this morning that we are not as we once were. We are not even all that we will be, but we have been changed by your grace. Thank you. I pray, Father, that as we take the bread and the cup, that we would allow this to sanctify us, to move us deeper and further along with you, to remember that we are your workmanship, now newly created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we would not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, we would not tolerate it or entice ourselves or dance on that line. Help us to be holy people, to live holy lives. And may we be restrained to remember that we are wholly yours, body and soul, redeemed by you. We thank you for the bread and the cup. We thank you for all that it means. We thank you for saving grace in our lives. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death and the evil one forever. Amen.